Well, we're going to continue through our study on the Holy Spirit this Sunday morning. So turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be in John and Romans quite a bit today. John 14 is where we'll start. In our first two studies in the Holy Spirit, we have learned that a strong relationship with the Holy Spirit is essential to becoming more like Jesus. We also learned that having that strong relationship with the Holy Spirit, it starts with a proper understanding of who He is and how He operates in our lives. And in our last study, we talked about who the Holy Spirit is. So if you missed that, I encourage you to go listen to that because it's important. This morning, we're going to begin to look at His role in our lives. So John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus begins to lay out the Holy Spirit's role in our life. Now, the context of John 14 is Jesus, it's the night before he's going to be crucified. He's going away. He's going to die, rise again, and then ascend to heaven. But he promises the disciples that he will not leave them alone, that he will send them the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter 14 in the Gospel of John, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it doesn't see Him, neither does it know Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and shall be in you. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He's going to send them. He calls them another comforter. The word another means another of the same kind. In other words, I'm going to give you someone who's exactly like me. He's a comforter, one who comes alongside to help. I'm going to not leave you orphans in another passage, he'll tell them, but he says, I will come to you through the Spirit of God. So what will this helper who is just like Jesus do? Well, in verse 17, he explains two of the three things the Holy Spirit will do. He says, first off, he says, you know him for he dwells with you. In other words, this was something they were already experiencing. The word with there, it's a Greek preposition that means to come alongside. So Jesus says, you've already experienced this aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. He's come alongside you to help. Now, that means that this is not just for the disciples because Jesus said this before the cross, before anyone could be born again. The Holy Spirit always has dwelt with and will always dwell with every human being who has ever lived. And we're going to take a look at what that means this morning. Secondly, Jesus says, not only will he, is he already with you, but he shall be future in you, a different preposition, not alongside, but inside. This, when Jesus spoke this, had not occurred for the disciples yet, but it would occur for them after the cross. In John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive you all the Holy Holy Ghost, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And they did. The Holy Spirit came and indwelt them. They were born again. We'll study that. Hopefully, if Jesus tarries, if he doesn't tarry, I won't be sad about missing that study. But if he does tarry, then we'll cover that next Sunday. But he shall be in you. That's a future thing they were going to experience. There's a third ministry, a third way the Holy Spirit helps us. And that is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The disciples here stand before Jesus. They've already had the Holy Spirit breathed into them. They're already born again. But if you remember, Jesus, after he did that, he said, you're going to go and tell people about me, but not yet. He said, wait till you be endued with power from on high. Jesus explains this again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
He says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Another different prepositional phrase here, different word. He will come upon you, not beside you or in you, but upon you. And as a result, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So, After Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 2, we see this happen for them. So again, a future event but when John 14 is written, and it would occur after Jesus ascended to heaven. So this morning, we are only going to discuss the first ministry of the Holy Spirit, His work with us. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit with us? This is primarily to an unbeliever, or us when we were unbelievers. Look at John chapter 16 with me, what we read in our scripture reading. And I always love it when uh, the worship team, you know, the Lord's telling them the same thing. I know they, that uh, Justin shared from John 16 before he started. He didn't know I was going to uh, be here this morning. But John 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus explains. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, necessary, advantageous, beneficial for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove who? The world. Someone's awake. When he has come, he will reprove who? There we go. Okay, the world. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So here we see the target of this ministry is the world, the unbeliever, this primary thing. It doesn't mean that Jesus does, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't continue to work in this way in our life after we're saved, but this is his primary ministry to, is to the unbeliever in this way. He will reprove. The word there means to convict, to ex- expose a wrong or to bring a wrong into the light. The Holy Spirit's going to convict or expose the wrong or bring to light a wrong in the unbeliever in three areas. Number one, the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. And Jesus explains what that means in verse 9. Because they do not believe on me. One of the questions that frequently I get asked as a pastor is, Pastor, well, if I do this, will, 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 will I go to hell? To which I would reply, you're asking the wrong question. And your question actually shows that you don't really understand heaven and hell. The problem isn't that we do certain things and like God gets triggered and he goes, oh, that's it, you're going to hell. That's not how it works. God is not like us as parents sometimes, you know, like where we're like, hey, cool it, cool it, cool it. And then finally you're like, that's it, I've had enough. That's not how the Lord operates. We stand in a lost condition. Our condition is, if you did nothing in your whole life, you just were born and you lived life your own way, did nothing, didn't have to say anything negative about God, didn't have to become a horrible murderer, and you are headed on the path to judgment. The Holy Spirit shows us that. The Holy Spirit, you see, He exposes the wrongness in our hearts of thinking that that we're a good person, of thinking that... It's only certain sins that will keep us from heaven or from God. The Holy Spirit exposes the, really the only true thing that's going to keep somebody out of heaven, which is not trusting in Christ. Not trusting in Christ. You see, very often we trust in something other than Christ. 
We trust in church attendance or religious experience or our own goodness or the fact that I'm better than other people. I think I'm better than other people or the fact that I haven't done certain things that are really bad. I just fail a few times here and there. We have all sorts of views on our own, what we can trust in for our salvation or for heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes and he says, if you are not in Christ, you are in trouble. You're in trouble. Because whether it's my own goodness or another person's goodness or some type of religious behavior, nothing besides Jesus can rescue me from my sin. When someone stands before the Lord someday in judgment, two things are going to be open. Two books, sets of books are going to be open. One book is going to contain, going to contain all their sin. And you're going to look at that and you're going to go, there's no doubt I'm guilty. There's no doubt. But then there's another book. And that book is really the only one that matters the book of life. Because if your name's there, which if you're standing at the point to have the other book open, it means it's not. But there's one last check, one last check, because that's really the one that matters. You could have a lot of information in the other book and have a a rap sheet that's as long as as long could be. But what's going to be the problem is your name's not in the other book, the book of life. You never repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior. That's where the problem is going to lie. And that's what the Holy Spirit shows us. He comes to us and he says, you need Jesus. You need a savior. You cannot rescue yourself. No one else besides Jesus can rescue you from your sins. The second thing the Holy Spirit exposes, the wrong ideas he exposes in our heart, he convicts us of righteousness. And Jesus explains what that means. Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. You see, When the Holy Spirit comes to us and he convicts us of our sin, our our need for a savior, we respond by going, well, yeah, but I'm not as, I'm not as bad as everyone else or nobody's perfect. And I hear that sometimes people say, well, listen, you know, I, I realize, okay, I'm a sinner, but nobody's perfect. And I say, that's actually not a factually true statement. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Now here's the truth. Remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration? And he's there and the glory of God comes on the mountain, interrupts Peter when he's trying to build a political campaign. And, and the Lord just ignores him, just interrupts him. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Shut up, Peter. You know, listen to him, you know? No, it doesn't say shut up, Peter. That's what I would have done. God's much nicer than me. Listen to him. At that moment in time, Jesus had, he had lived it. He had done everything to please the Father. You know, when God says, and whom I'm well pleased, what God is saying, there's no, he doesn't need any sacrifice for his sin. He doesn't need redemption. He, he doesn't need anything. He could just walk right into heaven right now, and I'd be totally cool with that. And the truth is, Jesus could have been like we are sometimes with people. See, it can be done. What's your problem? And then just, boom, walked into heaven and been done with us. That's why John 3.16 matters so much, Right? He didn't. He went to the cross. He went, left that mount with his father again in glory and his perfect fellowship with him, hanging out with two people who actually get it instead of guys like Peter and you and me. And he goes down into the valley with all the demon-possessed people that need help because he loves us and he wants to rescue us. So the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he goes, listen, 
you have a false standard because you, you measure yourself and you say, well, I am a good person and here's why. No, I'm not perfect, but here's why. I've got good reasons for why I left my spouse. I've got good reasons for why I'm ignoring my kids. I've got good reasons why I was rude to that person. I've got good reasons for why I do this at work because my boss isn't fair with me. We take God's standard and we lower it down to a place where we can look at ourselves and we can go, I'm a decent fellow. There's no reason I should be kept out of heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and he says, no, those standards that you have for yourself, whether it's lower it, I'm good enough, or I'm trying to be good, that's the motive that matters, I'm trying my best. No, none of it. God's standard is Jesus, perfection. He's the only one righteous enough to walk into heaven on his own. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside. He says, listen, you, you are a sinner. You need a savior. You cannot trust in yourself or anyone else besides Jesus. And you, you cannot lower the standard. The standard is clear. It's perfection and you don't meet it, which means you're in trouble. And then the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, verse 11 says, of judgment. And Jesus explains, because the prince of this world is judged. One of the other most common things I'll hear from, from, from people is when you start talking about it and you say, listen, you clearly fall short of God's standard. So by your own admission, you're, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to go to heaven or hell? And it's funny, you'll, like, I'll take, when I share the gospel, I, I do it this way. I'll, tell, I'll say, hey, do you think you're a good person? And most people will say yes. And I'll say, okay, well, let's put you to the test. Go through the Ten Commandments. And of course, by that time, you're not going to testify you're a good person. So I say, okay, now I'm not accusing you of being a bad person, but you've by your own admission have admitted, I don't keep, I don't even keep the basic things. So on the basis that you fact that you fall short of God's standard, are you going to go to heaven or hell? It's without fail, almost immediately, someone will say, well, heaven. And I say, well, why? You, you don't meet any of God's standards. And they say, well, God's a forgiving God. But see, this is part of what the Holy Spirit convicts us of too, that wrong idea that God just will arbitrarily forgive us, that God is just a good God, and therefore, yeah, He knows we'd, we fall short, so He's just going to forgive everyone. The Holy Spirit exposes that false hope, that false idea that God will automatically just forgive our sin because He's good. And He explains, well, what about Satan? Satan's already been judged, and he has no hope of forgiveness. So why are you different? why would you get off for free, but Satan doesn't? He's already been judged. Like God has already explained how he handles sin. So you cannot rely upon this idea that God's just going to arbitrarily just say, well, I'm love and I'm, I'm good. So everybody gets to go to heaven. The Spirit of God convicts, showing us that anyone who refuses to trust Christ will not find forgiveness. There's only one place where forgiveness is found. Now, in addition to this conviction that the Holy Spirit brings in these three areas, the Holy Spirit also is constantly testifying to an unbeliever, to you and me before we were saved, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Look at John 15, 26. John 15, 26 says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, when the Holy Spirit comes, which proceeds from the Father, He shall testify of me. He's going to bear witness about me. He's going to explain to you who I am. He's going to show you that I am who I've told you I am. And we know that this is referring to unbelievers because in verse 27 it says, and you, the disciples, you shall also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit's working on them. He's telling them, and then you're going to tell them. 
So this is part of how the Holy Spirit works alongside us. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then he testifies that Jesus is who he said he was. We learn this in 1 John. At the end of 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says, Who is he that overcomes the world except he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that he is, this is he that came by water and by blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So the Holy Spirit, he shows us Jesus. He's not just any other dude. You know, he's not just somebody who came and he said some nice things, but he's the Son of God incarnated, born as a man. And then that Son of God, he didn't just lead a normal life. He lived in a way that pleased God. He was perfect. And then he went and he didn't just die a normal death. He came by water and he came by blood. He died on the cross for our sins. The Holy Spirit's constantly testifying to that in an unbeliever's life. Convicting and then revealing. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do this? I mean, is it just kind of a, kind of a Holy Spirit moment, kind of where you, know, you go throughout your day and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I, got, I need to talk to you. Certainly, maybe you and I have had something like that happen, but the Scriptures tell us that there are three ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read Psalm 19, verse 1. But you guys turn to Romans chapter 1. It's Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. When those difficult days, very often I'll find myself on my front porch reading my Bible and spending time with the Lord and just wrestling with the Lord. And I'll look up from my Bible and my porch gives me a view of the, the neighborhood, the sky. It's just, it's very, it's kind of just right there, lays it all out in front of you in a very kind of a wide panning view. And I sit there and I look out and you just see how vast the sky is. You see little tiny planes flying in the sky. You know, they're not little tiny things, right? big jets with 100 people on them. I see how vast that is. I see how beautiful, like the tr- wind blowing in the trees. I live near a lake, and so the, the wind blows off the lake on the trees very often. See all the animals and everything, and all the people walking around. And you think of, this is just my neighborhood. And immediately it comes to my mind just how big God is, how he's real, how he's out there. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit works through creation. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Why is God angry about this, that they suppress the truth? Because that which may be known about God is revealed in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him, the things we can't see about God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And what do we learn about God? What can we not see but we know is true about God from just looking at creation? Two things, even his eternal power and his Godhead so that they are without excuse. I look out and I can see two things when I look out at creation, two things very clearly. There is a God and he's all powerful, way bigger than me. I look out there and I can go, I could plant something and probably will die, but someone more skilled than me could plant it and make it grow. But I can't design something like that. I look out there and I see the sky, I see what's beyond the sky. Yeah, we can make planes that fly in the sky, but we didn't make the sky. 
The Bible says that God is angry why his wrath is revealed from heaven. Why he judges is because you, every single human being, no matter how much access they've had to the Bible or to the gospel or to church or anything else, they can know those two things. And the Bible says they suppress it to live an ungodly way. In other words, relate to God the wrong way and then unrighteous way to relate to other people the wrong way. We treat people wrong. We treat God wrong because we look out there and we go, no, no, bro, not for me. Nope, I don't believe it. Something else. There was a, a big, you know, tight-knit conglomeration of energy and boom. That's how it came into existence. Even though that goes against the laws that we know how our universe works. We suppress the truth. So what is the Holy Spirit constantly doing? We're out in creation, we see these things, and the Holy Spirit's going, there is a God. And he's all-powerful. What are you going to do about that? You know, it's fascinating how when kids come into the world, you don't have to tell them there's a God. You have to tell them there's not a God. Because they look out there and they, they see it. They know it. My son came to me the other day and he said, Dad, he said, what happens if someone lives in a place and they never hear about the Bible, they never hear about anything? And I say, well, I say, Let's ask the question a different way. What do they know? Because the Bible tells us they know two things at least. Every human being knows two things. And if in knowing those two things, you decide to craft a little piece of wood and turn it into a guy with six arms and seven eyes and 42 toes, who has 14 goddess wives that he sleeps with all the time and creates all his little god children and whatever, and you decide to create something out of your own mind, something that's less than yourself, because you create this little God who can, has eyes but he can't see, ears but he can't hear, hands but he can't help, mouths but he can't speak, legs but he can't move. And that's going to be your answer? I said, who do you think's at fault there? I will frequently hear, I don't hear as much these days, but I used to hear a lot from people who would disagree with Christianity or reject the gospel, and they'd say, well, what about the person, you know, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea who's never heard the gospel, and no one's ever going to bring the Bible to him? What about him? To which I always reply, I say, well, if you care so much about him, what are you doing here in front of me? Like, you're telling me God doesn't love him, and it's not fair. Well, what if God's sending you? Clearly, you're the one that cares about this person. Why aren't you there? Why aren't you listening to God who's telling you that this is important? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the Holy Spirit works through creation. Romans chapter 2, the Holy Spirit also works in a different way. Romans 2 verse 14. Paul explains that someone who's never had a Bible, they never had the law of Moses. He says when they, when they do certain things, it teaches us something. He says in Romans 2.14, for when the Gentiles, which don't have the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these who have not the law are a law unto themselves. In other words, like when we look in society and, and you see, see them, they may not have the, the Bible, they may not have the gospel or anything, but you see certain things that you go, well, that's how we're supposed to live. Like you're not supposed to kill people. You're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to steal. Where does that come from? It shows us that there's something in every man's heart that God's placed there, even if they don't have a Bible. 
The Bible says the law of God is written on their hearts. Verse 15, which shows the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing, also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. You know, it's fascinating. I never had to teach any of my kids to lie. Never. Like, I never had to sit down with them and go, now, listen, listen, when you go into that Sunday school today, okay, and I know that little bully Bob over there is always, you know, messing with you. This time, you hit him first. But make sure you start crying before you hit him. And that way, when the teacher looks over and goes, what happened? You go, Bob, hit me first. I never had to teach any of my kids to do that. Never. But then you would see him, you know, see him out in the, in the, in the sunroom, you know, playing with their toys and looking over to see if I'm looking. Why? Because there's a conscience in their heart. God's law is written on their heart. They know they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. If you ask them why, they can't say, well, you know, dad, Romans chapter such and such says you shouldn't treat a person that way. No, but it's in here. It's in their conscience. The Holy Spirit's working through their conscience. You know, when you deal with little kids, as a parent, when you deal with little kids, by the way, you know, it's not that you don't come to them and say, now, you know, the Bible says, you know, in Ephesians, it says, don't, you know, them that stole, steal no more. So quit taking your brother's toys. You could do that. But more likely, you you have to start explaining to them, saying, listen, before you did that, were were you thinking you shouldn't do this? Like, were you feeling guilty at all or something telling you inside you shouldn't do that? Well, yeah. I mean, inevitably, yeah, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, yeah. Why'd you do it? I, I wanted it. Okay, so you ignored that little thought or that voice in your heart saying, don't do that. So that's the Lord talking to you. You need to respond to the Lord. The Holy Spirit's working through our conscience. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and who Jesus is through believers sharing the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans ten fourteen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. When we go out to share the gospel with somebody or you find yourself in a place where the Lord starts tapping on your heart and says, tell them about me. We struggle, don't we, at times? Like we think, well, I, I won't know how to answer their questions or I don't want to pester them or, you know, this feels out of place, awkward, whatever. One of the things that we must always remember, always, always, always remember is that no matter how good a job you do or no matter how badly you fumble through a presentation of the gospel, if the Holy Spirit's not working there, none of it's going to be worth anything. There are times when you might feel like you're fumbling and I'm not doing a good job, but if, if it's a Holy Spirit moment where he's brought you there, you, know, be, you, know, you might be saying, I'm the worst person in the world to share the gospel with this other person. And the Holy Spirit's going, yeah, but you're all I got to work with right now. You're the one that's in front of them. Just speak the word. When we share the gospel with people, when we preach the good news, Isaiah says, how beautiful are those feet? He doesn't say, oh, when we get it right and we got all the right answers and we articulate it perfectly, those are some beautiful feet. No. Can you think of the people who were most influential in you coming to Christ? 
how much they mean to you. They're flawed people too. I bet if you were to pull them aside and, and say, hey, like when you shared the Lord with me those first couple times, like did you feel like you were gonna get anywhere with me? Or do you feel like, you know, you did a good job? I bet a lot of them would be like, no, man, I thought I blew that big time. <laughs> I had one time I was sharing the gospel with somebody and I just thought, Lord, what am I doing? And I, don't know, I feel like I got all the wrong, wrong answers. I'm saying all the wrong things, not getting anywhere. And by the end, I was praying with them to receive Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. We sang that song, Take Us Back. I guarantee you that People like the Pharisees and other people who were, were in the Jewish community who were getting saved back then, it was not because the disciples could articulate things better than they could. I guarantee you, because they didn't. They, they specifically mentioned, they took note of the fact, these guys are untrained and unlearned. When Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, who would have been king, but couldn't be because they were under the, another empire, when they came back to Judea to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. When he came back, he was so discouraged. He goes, how are we going to pull this off? We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. We got all these opponents out there who don't want us to rebuild. Joshua, the high priest, he was discouraged too. And so God sent the prophet Zechariah to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and said, this is what I want you to tell him. He, a picture, he said it had a vision of, of these two containers pouring oil into these two bowls. And he explained, you know, that's, the, the, whole, that's the, the power of God's Spirit, and it's, the bowls are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And he, he explained to me, he said, Tell, say unto Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. You do, maybe you don't have the resources, maybe you don't have the army to get it done, but it doesn't matter because if the Holy Spirit is helping you, it's going to get done. So the Holy Spirit, he uses creation, he works through creation. He works through our conscience, and he works through us when we share the gospel to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I'm immediately, I'm, I'm praying in my mind, you know, Lord, convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Holy Spirit, get a hold of their heart, because if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, when the Holy Spirit is doing that in a person's life, there's two possible responses to, to that ministry, his role in our lives to come alongside and convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Isaiah talks about it, or Paul talks about it when he quotes Isaiah here in Romans 10, 16, and 17. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah, the same guy who said, how beautiful it is when are the feet of those who go and share the good news of salvation. It's great. But then later on, he's complaining. He's like, Lord, nobody believes me. <laughs> nobody believes us. Who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to do our part, but then that person has a choice. There's only two ways you respond to the work of God's spirit. You either reject him or you trust him. We see that in 1 John chapter 5. We studied it when we studied that letter. 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He that believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that does not believe God has made him, God, a liar, because he does not believe the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's, that's it. It's either or. There's no middle ground. Now, 
When someone is repeatedly rejecting what the Holy Spirit is bringing to light in their heart, is revealing to them, convicting them of, it can result in a, a disdain toward the Lord. And this disdain can lead to something that the Bible calls the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I would say a top five question I get as a pastor is, Pastor Will, I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Can you tell me if I have? So let's look at Matthew chapter 12 and let's look and see what this unforgivable, unpardonable sin is. Matthew 12. It says, then was brought unto him, Jesus, one possessed with a demon, blind and dumb, another mute, couldn't talk. And Jesus healed him insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? This has to be the Messiah. They've given this, this kid and he can't talk, he can't see, he's possessed by a demon. Jesus casts the demon out, heals him. He could see, he could talk, he's in his right mind. Amazing miracle, right? Awesome. And, and when people see this, they're, they're going, whoa, this, I mean, this has to be the son of David. This has to be the Messiah. Only the Messiah would do something like that. And so they start telling everybody and the, the Pharisees are hearing it. And they're going, we got we to gotta put the kibosh on this. That's not good. And so they, they developed this answer when they would hear it from people. And they said, this fellow does cast out demons. He does, but it's by the Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. In other words, he does it by the power of Satan. He's casting him out. He's deceiving you. He's trying to get you to trust him by casting out his own demons. And note what it says in verse 25. And Jesus heard what they said. Is that what it says? Jesus knew their thoughts. The beginning of this passage here, it has led some to incorrectly conclude that if you ever question a miracle or a minister or a ministry, you could end up committing the unforgivable sin. So don't ever do that. Don't touch the Lord's anointed, right? That is not the case at all. The unforgivable sin that Jesus is going to talk about in verse 31, he's not dealing with the fact that they told him, they slandered him and said he was doing something by the power of Satan. He was talking about their thoughts. He says, you guys have seen something that clearly is the power of God, the work of God. Clearly the Holy Spirit's revealing to you who I am. People are coming to you and telling you, I'm the Messiah. And what you're doing is this. The Holy Spirit is bringing his conviction. You're going, no, 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 no. I see it. I know what's going on, but the answer is no. 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 We will not have this man to rule over us. No. Give us Barabbas. And so in verse 31, Jesus says, wherefore I say unto you, after he explains how they're, they're rebuttal, their explanation of what's going on can't be true. It makes no sense. Kingdom divided against itself can't stand. In verse 31, he says, wherefore I say unto you. Why? Because he knew their thoughts. That's how that whole, this whole speech starts, because he knew their thoughts. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. You can slander me all you want, and you could be forgiven. But if you're going to slander the Holy Spirit, where else are you going to go? 
Where else are you going to find salvation? If you're going to reject the testimony of God's spirit of your own sin, your own need for a savior, your coming judgment, and the fact that Jesus is the only way out of it. Where else are you going to go? There is no forgiveness. Verse 32, whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. You guys are making it very clear what's going on in here. It is obvious you have rejected so clearly what is obviously in front of your eyes that you are entering into dangerous territory. The unforgivable sin is when you've repeatedly experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know it's true, but you slander his testimony by saying no, by hatefully rejecting it. Stephen warned the religious leaders in Jerusalem that they were headed this direction. He gives them a whole history of, of how his people have done this time and time again. He says, you're, you're going to do it too. And so in Acts 7.51, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you've never been born again, Please don't keep rejecting the Holy Spirit's conviction. Don't substitute religiosity or, well, I do all my Bible studying at home and that's where I get my relationship with God. Don't substitute what God says in his word. Don't substitute the need to be born again. Don't substitute anything else and reject that conviction because if you keep doing that over and over again, you're going to have a disdain for the Lord and a repeated disdain for the Lord will give you such a hard heart that you'll never be open. And you'll go to the grave thinking everything's fine and be lost forever. Have you ever thought of the logic that causes you to charge into a parted Red Sea after the Israelites? Think about it for just a second. Think about it. Like you've already seen plagues. You've already seen God's reality. You've already seen his power over your deities. And then you go chase the Israelis into the desert. You got them cornered. They got a mountain on one side, mountain on the other, Red Sea in front of them and behind them, and you're coming to the front of them. There's no way out. And now all of a sudden there's a way out. And what is the way out? An entire body of water parts into two. And they're walking through it. What? kind of logic takes you to the point that you go, get in there and get them, boys. Seriously. Seriously. Your heart's hard at that point. That's the only way that logic works. And I've seen it on deathbeds. You try to reason with people. And they're just stubborn because you say, why? Why would you be stubborn now? You got nothing to lose. Not in this life, but everything for eternity. But they will look you in the eye and go, I'm just not interested. Wow. There is no other means of salvation. It's the only sin that can't be forgiven. You know, I talked earlier about that rap sheet. Isn't it wonderful to know that however long your rap sheet is, that Jesus forgave you for it? <laughs> I'm so grateful for the Lord's forgiveness. There's only 
your rap sheet only has to have one thing on it to keep you out of heaven. And it's never turn to Christ. If that's you this morning, please don't, don't wait another day. Of course, the other response is faith. When you and I receive the conviction and the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus, we make a decision to believe the gospel, to trust Christ as our Savior. And the moment that happens, I begin to experience now that second work of the Holy Spirit where he comes in me. And like I said, Lord willing, we'll get to that next Sunday. So, But I mean, this is a good segue to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Because one of the reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to remember, right? To remember. It's so difficult to be high and mighty when you hold one of these things in your hand and you start remembering what it's all about. It's very difficult to remain hard-hearted and angry at our spouse. It's very difficult to grieve the Holy Spirit, which is something we can do as a believer. We can break the, the Holy Spirit's heart. We can grieve Him by our refusal to yield to what He wants to do in our life to change us. But when we hold this in our hand and we remember what Jesus did for us and His love for us, it's hard to stay there, isn't it? And so this is a place where we soften our heart, where we you make that ground a place where we say, God, work in me. And so as we do that this morning, we, we're going to sing a song. That's the time to kind of come back, come back to the simple truth of, Lord, you love me so much that you died for me. You gave me this whole new life that I have, this standing in Christ that I have now in you. To thank him for that to remember what it's all about. That's why we, we strive to do things right with our spouse even though we're mad at them or even though they are mad at us. That's why we strive to get back into the, the battle when we feel like I just, I'm done remembering what he did for us. It's in light of all that he's done for us that we give everything back to him, amen? So Lord, as we're gonna do this right now, remember you, we give this time of worship to you. We're gonna sing. Lord, we want to do it not with our, just our voices, but with our hearts. We don't want to be like Isaiah said, this people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Lord, you know if, if our hearts have even become calloused as believers this morning because we've grieved you, your work, the work of your spirit in us. Lord, we ask that you'd kind of break through and fillet our hearts out and spread it out again so, Lord, we can remember. Remember what you saved us from and recommit ourselves to just walking with you day by day, following you, obeying you, yielding to your spirit that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.